The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. I am going to be honest, I'm really excited about this morning. Uh, kids, I am really glad that you're in here. Um, when our older kids are able to join us, it just makes the morning all, all the better. So I'm glad you're in here. Um, I, we're getting into chapter two of Romans, and like I said, I'm a bit giddy to get there. But before we get there, I, I have a kind of a crazy challenge I want to give you. Um, and hear me out. Um, I want to challenge you to take a moment this week, or maybe this is a crazy week, I'm not going to be all legalistic about it, sometime soon, take a moment and carve out some time to read Romans in one sitting. Hear me out. I know this sounds a bit crazy. It takes an average reader, so you're not fast, you're not like crazy slow, average reader takes about an hour to read through Romans straight through one. So I want to challenge you to take some time, carve out some time. If you like coffee, make a good, good hot cup that'll last you through the time. Take an hour, read it start to finish. Maybe it means just getting up one hour earlier. Maybe it means, you know, knocking this thing out on your lunch break. Maybe this means just, you know, not Netflixing one night, whatever it looks like for you, um, but to take the hour. Here's why, here's why I wanted to challenge you with this. It is really important for us to understand that the book of Romans is one letter, one argument, one, one cohesive teaching and thought. And because of this, the book of Romans is meant to be read in one sitting. It's meant to be read and taken in all at one time. In fact, think of it like this. Think about the sermon that I'm about to preach. You could, if you wanted to, take the recording of this sermon and listen to it in bite-sized clips. You could. That's one way to do it. It's not the way I would hope you would do it. Uh, It's not the way I kind of intended you to do it, but you definitely could do that. But the more natural way is for us to come together for a set amount of time and for us to take it in in one sitting. The book of Romans is a bit like that. One letter, one teaching, one big picture. And here's why I'm saying this. Um, a couple reasons. I'll give you one. The, the first reason is because as a church, we teach through books of the Bible, and what we do is we walk through books. I, we walk through them step by step, and, and I believe it's the best way for us as a church to engage with God's Word. You're here to hear from God, not to hear from me, and I believe it's the best way for us to do that. But if we're not careful, what we could do is get so preoccupied with the zoomed in that we miss the zoomed out. Now, I'm going to do my very best as a preacher to just constantly drive us back and to see how the the parts fit into the whole, but doing this would help you to see the whole thing. The second reason is because this book, the book of Romans, is one of the most theologically rich and significant books that has ever been written, ever. 
Paul basically gives us this rich theological understanding of what Jesus has done and why it matters and who we are now because of what Jesus has done. He gives us this, and it's rich, and it is beautiful. And as a pastor, I have absolutely no reservations telling you that if you spend an hour in this, it is a good use of your time. No reservations saying that. And I want to challenge you to consider it. Think about it. It's just one hour. Think about this. And as you do it, I'd love to hear just your experience, what God is teaching you through it, okay? That's the challenge. Let's get into the, to the scripture today. Um, speaking of one argument, we're dropping into chapter two, and uh, we're dropping into chapter two of Paul's unfolding argument. And as we do this, I just want to start with something that may sound kind of um, petty or small. It's not. I want to I start with the who, It's really important as you read this, and I want you to see in our text who Paul is talking to, and and the real thing I want you to see here is in chapter one, we see the pronouns. Look at your pronouns in chapter one. It's they. It's them. Okay, so you see they are without excuse. They didn't honor God. They thought they were wise, but they became fools. So God gave them up. It is all theys, and it is all thems. It's real comfortable for us as we read this, the theys and the thems. But in chapter 2, church, there is a shift in pronouns. If you look with me, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse. Later in verse 1, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 3, do you suppose? Verse 4, do you presume? Verse 5, because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath. There is a shift, church, and you see it in the pronouns. Who is the who? It's very important. It's very important for us to define this. So in chapter 1, the theys and the thems, we've talked about this, were those people who were outside the people of God, who did not follow God, the community at large, the lost world that surrounded the church. That was the theys and the thems. They did not follow Jesus. They were out there. They were they, right? That was chapter 1. The best apples to apples comparison that we made when we see the theys and the thems, is to think about our lost world, the lost community around us who does not know, does not follow Jesus, and this is important, does not claim to. That's the theys, that's the them. Maybe they know about Jesus, they probably do, but they don't know him. Those are the theys, those are the thems. Well, in chapter 2, we see the yous. And we're going to see a different focus, a shift in focus from the they and them out there at large to the lost, unbelieving Jewish community. Now, I want you to follow me here. Specifically, what Paul is talking about, when you see the you in this text, Paul is talking about those who, because of their ethnicity, because of how they were born and who they were born to, Because of all of that stuff, they thought they were good. They thought that they had an in. They thought that they weren't bad at least than all the other heathens. And hear me, 
the who in this text, we need to be honest, is going to hit a lot closer to home than the who in chapter 1. When Paul says you here, he's talking about all of those who think that based on birth or status or position or ethnicity or nationality or anything else, based on anything else, who think they're okay, who think that they're not as bad as the others. Whereas the they and the them in chapter 1, it's kind of easy for us as the church to read it and say, amen, preach it, amen. Those guys out there, it's a they problem, right? But here in chapter 2, Paul shines the light just a little bit closer to home. And although here in our text, if we're looking at the context here, Paul is speaking directly to the unbelieving Jewish community in ancient Rome. At the heart of it, Paul is speaking directly, and I need you to hear this, to the common tendency that we all see all throughout our community the tendency to place our confidence in something else. For our salvation. Whether it be our status, our family, our nationality, Paul is revealing the heart of it that we would seek solace, protection, salvation, that we would seek to elevate ourselves over other people because of something else. That's what Paul is speaking to when we're going to seek salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Here's what Paul says let's read this. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh, man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Um, Paul says, you guys are crazy. My, My words, crazy to place yourself in the judge's seat. Specifically, Paul says, it is crazy for the yous to condemn the theys and the thems. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's like the blind condemning the blind for being blind. It's like the dead condemning the dead for being so dead. It's crazy. Here in ancient Rome, Paul was teaching this community, there is no privileged birth position that will save you. Just because you're Jewish, just because you're a part of the chosen people of God by birth does not save you, does not give you the privilege to sit in the judge seat, does not give you the right to look down on all of those around you who you think need saving more than you. To think it's a good thing I'm not like that guy. In reality, Paul is going to tell us, you are the them, right? A couple weeks ago, as we talked about the wrath of God, we talked about the fact that there are not two types of people. It's not like over here we have those people who are going to have to deal with the wrath of God, and then over here we have those people who don't have to deal with the wrath of God. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the wrath of God will be poured out on sin, all of it, all unrighteousness. The question is, who is going to bear that wrath? Will it be you or will it be Christ? That 
is the question. That is the most important question. And the gospel is that Jesus came to bear the wrath of God for you fully and completely so that you will not have to bear it. That is the gospel. It is not two types of people. Let's bring this to our text. Those who will experience the wrath of God, the they and the thems. And those who will not, the you and the us. It's not that there are those who will experience the wrath of God for their sin, those heathen Gentiles over there, and those who will not, the chosen Jewish community over here. Paul destroys this idea. He turns it on its head, and he gives us a completely different understanding. Instead, he says, yes, there are two types of people. And here's what Paul, here is what Paul is saying here. Here's what he's doing here. He, he, seeing that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all sin, on all unrighteousness, knowing that, Paul says, there are two types of people. There are those who will bear the wrath of God, and that's including the they and the them and the you and the us's. And there are those for whom Christ has taken the wrath of God. And in this people, it will include the they and the them and the us's. He destroys the barriers. Both Jew and Gentile, he turns it on its head and says salvation is not through your nationality, ethnicity, your family tree, your status, your position, your money, or anything else. Salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. And regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, that is really good news because that is the heart and the plan and the gospel of God still today. I think we need to do just a little more heart work together here, though. Um, See, over the past couple weeks, we looked at our community, we looked out there, and we looked at our nation this morning, though, church, I want us to try to do some work in here, to look in. In fact, I want to uh, identify a specific group of people. This group of people have gone by different names. Ed Stetzer, who's a leading church thinker, he just does more work than a human being should be able to do, but he's a sociologist. Um, statistician, all kinds of things, professor, pastor. He just, I don't know where he gets his time. But he sees three groups of people in America today. He sees believers, non-believers, and what he calls the mushy middle. They have also been called cultural Christianity. They have also been called nominal, nominal Christianity Kyle Eidemann, a prominent pastor, Christian writer, he calls them not followers of Jesus, like Scripture calls us, but fans. And he ties them to being fair-weather fans at best. Craig Rochelle, another pastor writer, identifies them as what he calls Christian atheists. Practical atheism. They've also been called Christers. Um... The Christmas and the Easter Christians. Have you heard that? Now you have. Yeah. Christers. Uh, they have been called a lot of things. They've been called many, many things. But they are those, and I want you to hear me, who identify with Christianity 
loosely. But uh, maybe it's because of upbringing, maybe it's because of family, maybe it's because my dad and his dad and grandma were all Christians, so I'm Christian. Maybe it's just because of culture, maybe it's because there's some loose connection with the church, maybe that's it. Maybe it's because you're American, and you might think, you might hear that and say, come on, no one would think that just because they're American, they're good with God. I want to tell you, yes, they would. I, uh, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who literally told me, I asked him if they knew Christ and, and if, if they followed Jesus and if they were going to be with Jesus for all eternity. I was asking these questions and they, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good American. I'm like, not, not, what, I was, not what I was asking. Um, people do this. It, it's and I say this with a heavy, heavy heart because there is a large section of our community, and I want you to hear me, who identify as Christian who do not identify in Christ. As Stetzer calls them, the mushy middle. If you still don't believe me, I want to give you a very vivid and timely example. Um, when we were praying about starting Stone Oak Bible Church, we were praying hard for where and how and what God was going to do. We were praying a lot for our community, and we were getting to know our community. And a part of that is doing pretty extensive demographic studies. And uh, we had several surveys done, and what we found was incredible. But there was one thing that astounded me. It was the fact that in our community which, by the way, scored on a national low for what they call religiosity. We are on the lowest end of the tier. And you hear that and you think, what? Follow me. You'll hear why. Nearly two-thirds of our community identify in some way, shape, or form with Christianity. And you hear that and you're like, sweet, good, right? However, in a later survey, when asked... The same group, when asked, if faith of any kind, not just Christian, faith of any kind, if faith of any kind was important or significant in their life, two-thirds claimed to be Christian, but yet in answer to this question, 14.7% said that faith of any kind was significant or important to them in their life. Take that one in. Like that, the technical word for that is that stinks. Like that means that in our community, although two thirds loosely identify with Christianity, only about 15% believe that faith of any kind is important to them at all. So, what does that mean? What does it mean for those people who identify as Christians, but yet it's not important? What does that mean? Welcome to the mushy middle. Welcome to cultural Christianity. Who identify with Christianity, but yet who do not see Christ as significant in their life. I believe Paul is dealing with those people. 
I believe Paul is dealing with those people in Rome, and I believe as we come to this text, we are forced to deal with these people. I believe, church, that we are dealing with many in our community that are perhaps even connected to the church, maybe even connected to our church, who identify with the people of God, with the church, yet who do not identify with Jesus. And here Paul says, no, the wrath of God will be poured out on all sin, and there's no loose identification with the people of God, no family tree, no nationality, no ethnicity, no privilege of birth, no bank account. There is nothing apart from Jesus Christ that will remove this fact. It is only Christ, regardless of your family tree, your birth, your background, your nationality. The call of the gospel is to come. That Christ will bear the wrath of God for your sin fully and completely. Are you in Christ? It's not cultural Christianity. It's not nominal Christianity. It's not a loose connection with some church. It's not salvation by American citizenship. It's are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And, and listen to what Paul asks here. I think this is one of the biggest verses that we have looked at in our time in Romans so far. And I don't say this lightly. There is so much here. This is so foundational. It says this, Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Huh. <sighs> Take this in. Just take, take this in. Um, I want you to read that, those questions as though Paul is asking you. Read these questions as though Paul is asking you. Do you presume on the riches of, of God's kindness? Do you presume on the riches of his forbearance? Do you presume on the riches of his patience? Do you? To presume on something, I just want to define this. We don't use this word very often. This word means that we look down on something with content or, contempt or aversion, that we consider something of little value. That we look down on it, despise it, scorn it, treat it with contempt. So do we consider God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience to be of little value? Do we look down on it or even look down on it with contempt? In other words, do we look at our own lives and hear me and think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. So the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God, I mean, it's cool. It just doesn't have a great value because I'm already kind of great. Do we... Another way we can presume on, on his kindness and patience and forbearance is do we look at our community and think that nasty bunch of heathens, if God would just bring the rain and let justice flow, then all of a sudden the kindness and patience and forbearance of God is not loved, it's despised. We become like Jonah wishing that Nineveh would just burn. Do we presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience? Do we live as though they have little value? Or do we live as though we even look at them with content, contempt? Let's bring this closer to home because I, I want to bring out some things from these words. 
Let's look at the word kindness. Kindness is defined as being helpful, beneficial. It is goodness. It is generosity. The word forbearance. Listen to this. It's a temporary pause. A cessation. Praise God for that. Meaning, the wrath of God is just. It is revealed against all sin. And yet, in God's forbearance, he is not fast to, to smite us. He is slow to pour it out, holding it back in forbearance. The word patience. It's being able, listen to this, to bear up even under provocation. Oh, This means, church, that your God is generous and good and beneficial and helpful, and He's slow to pour out His wrath on you. Even when you are foolish and sinful, and even when we provoke Him, He is slow to anger. Praise God for that. He is kind. He is good. He is patient. Church, do you, do we presume on His kindness, His forbearance? His patience. And take this in because this is the question that I just think is the question of the morning. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. (sighs) Consider what this means because this has profound implications to our understanding of the gospel. And I want to highlight two of the implications here that are just life-shattering The first one is we need to be faithful to share the bad news. You hear that and you say, well, that sounds terrible, Pastor. Um, Follow me. This is vital. See, the good news is not good unless it's seen in contrast to the bad. The good news of a Savior is not all that good if we don't think we need saving. Jesus is the answer. Not all that helpful if no one's asking a question. We must faithfully proclaim the truth of our condition. We are not good people who just need God's help to become better. We are not pretty good people who just try hard. We, church, are sinners. We are not good. We are evil. We are set on evil continually, the Bible says, and your experience tells you. We are content and evil. We are not pretty good. We are dead in our sin. We are not good. We are broken. Our hearts are set on sin. From the beginning, we are not good. We are broken. There is not one who is good apart from Jesus. And against God's standards, we have all fallen short. We have all sinned. And the wages of that sin is death. That is the truth of our condition. The right and the just and the good response to our sin is the wrath of God because He is holy, He is perfect, He is just. Church, we are not okay, we are dead. We are not okay, we need a Savior, we need hope. We cannot save ourselves, we need saving. This is the truth of our condition apart from Jesus. That's it. What would lead us, church, to presume on the kindness of God? It's when we think we don't need it. And for so many in our community, we just don't think we need it that much. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. 
When you don't think you need kindness, when you don't think you need to repent, you're not led to repentance, you're led to self-reliance. We must understand our condition apart from Christ. It's the kindness of God that's meant to lead you to repentance. But the second thing is, it's not only about the bad news. We need to faithfully preach and proclaim the good news. How many know that we can swing the pendulum the other way? It's what's called sometimes the hellfire brimstone, turn and burn. It's not, you know, it's running so far from we're all okay, everything is awesome, to we're all doomed and it's all on fire. We can swing that pendulum. What's our response to the sin of our community? If, it's not, if we're not careful, we can forget that it's the kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance. We can forget that. And what we can begin to do is try to scare people into heaven. I'm not a fan of this tactic. Um, we can proclaim the bad news. We paint such a great picture of hell and we do it so well to try to just say, push them into heaven. Drive them to heaven because of hell. As crazy as it sounds, we turn heaven from the place of ultimate fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, and peace. We turn it nothing more than just the escape plan. You don't want to go there, so go there. Here's a good example of this. If you don't believe me, forget, okay, I'm just going to go with it. Um, if you were a Christian in the 90s or maybe early 2000s, you might know exactly what I'm about to say. Um, in fact, we talked about this in our last staff meeting as a church, and it turns out this is not, this wasn't just me. This was a thing. Oh, man, it's a disturbing trend. Okay, um, they were called a lot of things. The most common name I've seen in all the articles for them are hell houses. Hopefully this doesn't ring a bell for you, but it might. Um, maybe it was called something else, but here's what it was. It was basically modeled after kind of a haunted house theme, really big in October. Um, and the idea was simple. It was that they would, through a lot of smoke and a lot of scary things and lights and things. And, um, they would follow the life of, of individuals who were just in some deep, dark, nasty sin. And they would follow the life of them, right? And um, there was drugs, there was alcohol. I mean, there was every kind of sin depicted. And you just followed them. And you were like being taken in while these, at least the ones I went to, while these like demon characters are like going, like while you're walking. And you watch this unfold. Some of you are thinking, where did you grow up? Um, here. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, but in each story, what was depicted was just how dark and how nasty, and there were demons, smoke machines, darkness, and lights, and loud noises, and it was gory, and get, get the picture. And with each story, what would happen is the, toward the end of the house, there was the moment when each one of these characters would die. They would reach the end. In one of the last rooms of the hell house, you would see hell depicted where these individuals were being tortured. <laughs> I wish I was making this up. This scene was, it was grotesque. It was intense. It was, um, if the church had a good budget, it was really intense because they could spend the money on the, the special effects a little bit more. Um, 
But in the midst of the scene, what would typically happen is there was a pause, and there was someone who would get up and present an invitation to come to Christ. The message was simple. You don't want that. Come to Jesus. So you can miss that. You, you want to miss this? I see that hand. Come to Jesus. Now, there, are, there is some profound truth in this presentation. And I'm not putting the truth of this down. Sin is gross and it has consequences. It is dark and probably darker than what was depicted. Hell is real. The wrath of God is real. All of these things are real, all true. But the message that was presented in these hell houses was incomplete. Because it didn't present the gospel. By the way, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. <laughs> good news. Um, I'll put it like this. The, the fear of hell is a subpar motivation to come to Jesus. Bad news, although it is necessary, is insufficient. Why? Because Romans 2 verse 4, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The fear of hell is a subpar motivation to come to Jesus. Much better is when we see the glory and when we see the goodness, when we see the kindness, the patience, the forbearance of God. Much better is it when we see those things and we are led, we are overwhelmed by how good Jesus is. The gospel is the good news of God's kindness, church, through Jesus the gospel is God lovingly pursuing us, having patience with us who do not deserve it. Amen. Amen. The gospel is the good news of God's love and faithfulness to us. Yes, the bad news is true. We talked about that. Yes, it is true. We must faithfully present our condition and the bad news and where we are without Jesus. But the reality is, it makes the good news just that much better. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Have you experienced the kindness of God? Have you experienced the patience? Patience is hard. Have you experienced God's patience? His forbearance, His love for you. Here's the call from our text. It's the kindness of God that leads us to what? To repentance. The call for us this morning is repentance. And repentance, church, is not some vague shoot and I'm sorry up in the sky moment. It's a brokenness over sin and it's a turning. It's a turning around. It's, it's, a, it's a turning. In other words, I want you to think about what God's word just said here. It's the kindness of God that turns us around. How cool is that? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, which means it's the kindness of God that leads us to live lives that are turned around and changed. The kindness of God changes lives. It's the kindness of God. I want to do, I want, as we finish this, I, I want to do two things. First, for those of you who do not know Jesus, for those of you who maybe you're seeking, maybe 
you're here, and if you're honest, I mean, you don't, I'm not going to make you raise your hand on this. You're like, I'm straight up cultural Christianity. That, that's me. Um, maybe you would identify as a Christian, but you don't really follow Jesus at this point. Maybe that's you. If that is you, I want you to consider the kindness of God. He has been so patient with you. How many times have you frustrated you? (laughs) Yet he has been so patient. If we got what we deserved, the hell house couldn't even describe it. But praise God, he's for his forbearance. And he has given you I want you to think about this. He's given you this time, this space, right now. He has brought you to this place and given you this time to hear the good news of his kindness. His faithfulness is never failing. Would you consider his kindness to you? You do not deserve it. You you, you do not deserve it. But praise God, he is patient and he is kind. Consider His patience, kindness, and goodness. This is grace, church. And let it, let it, let that lead you to repentance. The call this morning is not just come to Jesus so you can avoid hell. That's not it. The call is to come to Jesus and get Jesus, and he is better and beyond all description. The call to Jesus is we get Jesus and he is good and patient and kind and let his kindness lead you to repentance. And for all who are here who are in Christ this morning, I want you to consider the faithfulness, the kindness, the patience, the goodness, the grace, the kindness of your God. Lamentations 3 says it like this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can we consider the kindness, His kindness this morning? We who are undeserving of His love now know and experience the perfect love of the Father. Can we just together consider that and let it drive us to repentance, lead us to repentance? to our knees in repentance. I want to finish our time with a quote this morning. I love this quote. Uh, This quote is by Robert Thune, and he says it like this. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But cheer up, the gospel is far better than you can imagine. So cheer up. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word in this time, for your grace, for your kindness, for your goodness, for the way you don't give us what we deserve, but instead you give us what we could never earn. God, it is that fact, it is that truth that drives us to repentance, to... God, you are good. This morning, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, that you would use this text, this Scripture, this time this morning to press on our hearts how good you really are. And for each and every one of us, that you would show us 
Reveal to us the ways, oh, the ways that you have been patient and kind. And that here in this moment, that as we consider that, that our hearts would overwhelm with gratitude and with brokenness for our sin and that we would repent and turn and follow. Cultural Christianity is not good enough. Let us be a people who are changed. God, I pray that you would do that work. I want to pray specifically for those in this room who have never responded to the gospel, who have never responded in faith to the work of Christ. We are reminded that it is not what would Jesus do that defines the Christian life. We are reminded that it is what he has already done. And in this moment, I just pray that you would impress on our hearts what he has already done. For every person here who does not feel good enough, who feels like they could never, ever, ever receive patience or kindness or goodness, Father, I just pray that you would show us that where sin runs deep, grace runs deeper. Would you remind us what Jesus has done? That he has taken the wrath of God fully, that he bears it and that we will bear it no more in him. And I pray that in this moment that you call us to yourself. God, would you continue to do this work as we respond and as we sing this next song about the fact that you hold us and you will hold us fast. God, that is your kindness and patience. And I just pray that that would become even more clear as we sing the gospel together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.